Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast for season five. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the global head of strategy here at Credit Sites. And today I have Zach Griffiths, our head of macro and U.S. investment grade strategy, to talk about what's happening so far in 2024. Do we have a new year, new market situation on hand or are we just going to continue to rally like we did in December and just smooth sailing from here? Zach, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Winnie. It's great to be back on the podcast. It is great to be back on the podcast. And I am doing this live from London across the pond. I started the year doing some Outlook presentations for the broader Fitch team. And it's been nice to get some intel on how investors over here are thinking about the market. But Zach, first, I want to start with the US because there's been a lot of data lately. What is happening so far on the macro front in 2024? Any big takeaways from the CPI print for December? I guess the headline takeaway would suggest that things started the year, at least in terms of the release of data. The the numbers are for December a little bit hotter than expected on the inflation front. But when you dig a little bit deeper, there's definitely a more balanced story to be told. I think when you look at Core CPI, it moved lower to 3.9% year over year from 4%. In November, the consensus call was for a move to 3.8%. You saw more of an upside surprise on the headline figure, which moved to 3.4% versus expectations for just 3.2%. Now, looking at food and energy, really the big, more volatile drivers, food was more or less unchanged, both food at home and the overall food category, we actually saw a deceleration in food away from home and energy prices flipped to a modest positive from two consecutive months of big declines. Now, looking at the the core figures, which we think are certainly more important for the Fed's policy setting, the only downside or at least downward print we had was medical care commodities with just a 0.1% drop. And so that breadth of decline in core goods kind of receded a little bit. It resulted in a flat reading after six consecutive months of core goods deflation and core services remains a little bit more stubborn at 0.4%. And so the more concerning side to me in in this kind of initial takeaway is that core services has remained stubborn. Shelter costs upticked to 0.5% from 0.4%. But if you look at the unrounded numbers, that was just an eight basis point increase in the pace of inflation, which flipped that to to round up to 0.5%. So not as big of a move as that quote unquote headline figure would suggest. So I think things are a little bit more balanced. We're, We're seeing progress and it's interesting to see the market 
reacting a little bit less than I would have anticipated just given how dovish things had gotten following that mid-December FOMC meeting. So in the write-up that we just put out, we're calling it a tie in terms of today's CPI print in the Fed's view. Um, definitely wouldn't put it in the in the wind column necessarily, but again, the trend is lower in core CPI. And if you look at headline on a three-month annualized basis, it's still just 1.8% despite the upside surprise. So no need for, for huge concern, but perhaps not the additional progress that the market had been anticipating and certainly that the Fed would like to see, Winnie. Yeah, it is interesting how subdued the market reaction has been especially after things got so frenzied around kind of a, a dovish pivot after that December Fed meeting and expectations for rate cuts really started to accelerate. Now, I would say that maybe the market was a little bit better positioned given the type of pricing action that we've seen to start the year. It hasn't been all rally hats on all the time. So perhaps positioning is in a little bit better balance. Are there other things on the macro front that you think are kind of helping to support the market post the CPI print or just other macro data takeaways that you have been noodling on lately? Yeah. One of the reasons that I would have expected a bigger move given the upside surprise was the non-farm payrolls data. I'd say the release in aggregate was more balanced than that headline suggests with an upside surprise on job ads, but fairly large net downward revisions over the prior couple months. The big concerning factor that we noted was average hourly earnings surprised to the upside. And instead of decelerating on a year-over-year basis, it actually accelerated. And so sort of have two consecutive upside surprises, at least in terms of top-level numbers on the inflation front between the non-farm payrolls report and this CPI print. So I think that's kind of the context in which I'd say things are a bit more surprising, at least in terms of the market reaction so far, where it makes a little more sense is if you look at the ISM manufacturing and services releases we've had so far, manufacturing remains weak. It's been in contractionary territory in terms of the headline number for 14 straight months. Prices paid also in contractionary territory. Services, surprise to the downside, that still remains in expansionary territory, but the employment index fell uh, the fifth largest drop since July of 1997. Now that could be due to some seasonal and survey issues there, but some more weakness there, at least on the employment front from, from those surveys while prices paid also kind of point to further disinflation in the pipeline. And so, again, I guess it's kind of a a balanced picture in terms of macro takeaways so far. And obviously, we're parsing through these very in a very detailed manner ahead of, of the January FOMC meeting. As I kind of already alluded to, the December FOMC meeting was much more dovish than even we had been anticipating, and the market certainly took it as such. You've had some policymakers come out and try and walk that back a little bit, but the market really hasn't responded to that and instead focuses on Chairman Powell's pretty clear pivot that we really expected to come perhaps at this January or March meeting as we're looking for that that first cut in March. And we're thinking that the Fed would not want to signal a pivot really much before they actually implement it. And so I, I guess balanced is the, is the key takeaway so far, Winnie, and we certainly have a couple prints to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks. I guess I could kind of go through that, those in a little bit of a detail. Briefly, retail sales is the big one next week, at least in terms of economic activity in the U.S. We also get the advanced estimate of 4Q 
23 GDP on January 25th. That coincides with the ECB meeting that day. Then we have PCE on January 26th. Obviously, that'll be a huge one, but we get a preview of what the inflation picture looks like in December with today's CPI print, the job openings and labor turnover survey on January 30th. And that gets us to the employment cost index, which I think is a very important one for the Fed and that FOMC meeting on January 31st, which also comes with the Treasury refunding announcement that morning. So it'll be a very eventful end of January. And I think that will really set the tone for where the market heads from here. I, you know, It's been a little bit more of, of a tepid start to the year after the, the torrid rally that we saw in December. And, and we're certainly looking to those ECB, Fed, and, and the Bank of England comes on February 1st, those meetings and some of those prints to kind of get a, a feel for where we go from here, Winnie. That's super helpful. And I think that your comments really highlight to me that the Fed is, is not taking any one data point in isolation. They're looking at a series of data, a series of months, and looking at kind of what is the moving average? What is the trend? And while we've had some recent upside surprises in payrolls, in average hourly earnings, in the December CPI report, it hasn't really knocked the trend off course. And so that gives me some confidence still that perhaps we can see a rate cut materialize as soon as March. Because in reality, you know, what what is 25 basis points either way really going to do beyond kind of signal where the Fed is ultimately going to go over the course of the year? And I think if the trend is established, kind of lower job ads, and we can't forget that payrolls report we did not see broad-based gains across different sectors. It was highly concentrated in things like healthcare, leisure, and hospitality, the sectors that have been hurting for people for quite an extended period. So I think that understanding kind of the trends and the directionality of things, and also then looking very detailed at, at the line items, it's going to be key to really understanding the outlook for the macro side this year and where the Fed is perhaps willing to go. So Zach, what's your favorite indicator for 2024? What do you think that investors should really be keeping a pulse on beyond just, you know, everyone is looking at CPI and PCE? I love this question, Winnie, and I was sort of looking through all of the the sheets we have to come up with something that isn't just, you know, CPI which obviously or PCE which are both certainly key for the Fed and if you look at really since the big run up in inflation post covid and now this move lower, the ISM services prices paid index has led core CPI year over year very consistently on a 6 month basis and that really began in the middle of 2020 so over the past three and a half years or so. And if you look at the most recent figures on that prices paid for ISM services, it's kind of plateaued, or I guess I should say troughed um, at around the, the mid 50s. And so we we kind of hit a low following a big trend lower and it's, it's stabilized a bit. And so perhaps that's a little bit more concerning or a reason to sort of consider maybe inflation gets stuck just a little bit above where the Fed wants to go. Again, that's not our, our base case. We have core PCE moving back to around two and a quarter percent at the end of this year. But I think that'll be a key one to watch to, to get a feel for where core CPI is headed with about a six month lag. If you, if you look at the chart really since 
uh, the middle of 2020 and add that six month lag to ISM prices paid, those two things are essentially right on top of each other. And so I think that's an interesting one for investors to watch and kind of use it as a guidepost of whether or not your expectations for disinflation are coming true or if there's reason to get concerned and, and maybe the Fed isn't going to be able to cut as much because inflation isn't going to ease as much as perhaps we and others uh, expect at this stage. Super helpful. I think for me, I'm still focused on consumer confidence reads, which have been kind of all over the place, but trending lower and kind of negative for a lot of the past two years at this point. But what's been interesting is no one has been paying attention to those consumer confidence readings because consumer behavior has not matched confidence. But in December, we actually saw a little bit of an increase in consumer confidence on both present expectations and, and future expectations. And we're also you know, consistent with that seeing decent economic data for December from payrolls and inflation. And so I'm wondering if there's a little bit more of a link now on the consumer confidence side of things and these other data points. It'll be interesting to see how retail sales ultimately pan out. So I, I do think that still trying to keep your hand on the pulse of the consumer is going to be important. And these confidence readings might become a little bit more relevant. So let's shift to talking a little bit about technicals because treasury supply, supply and demand across fixed income as a whole, I think it's going to be quite informative in portfolio performance this year. And we recently had a, a treasury auction. We've had some interesting happenings in the treasury market to start the year. So Zach, what has happened so far in the treasury market? How have auctions gone? What are we watching? Auctions have gone well so far, Winnie. So we have the the three-year auction and 10-year auction in the books as we record the 10-year happened yesterday. And really solid end-user demand, just looking at the, the recent trends, you had primary dealer takedown around 15%. That's fairly consistent with the recent trends over the last six months or the last year. You did have a small tail of half a basis point, I think in general, our key takeaway is you've got yield settling in right around 4%. Primary market demand is, is still solid at that level. We have had four consecutive tails, but I think that some of those readings are more about intraday moves and, and less about fundamental demand for whatever treasury tenor we're, we're talking about. And you know, looking at the bid to cover ratio, that also came in solid. And if you think about the fact that we're 100 basis points lower than we were just a couple months ago to see demand still solid, I think is encouraging for the idea that that we're not headed in a straight line higher from here. I'd say just looking at the, the three-year auction as well, much more a gauge of, of demand at the front of the curve. That, that auction stopped through by about a basis point and you had even more robust end user demand. And so I, I think that's kind of consistent with the narrative that people are looking to, to kind of take advantage of yields even where they are now, despite having fallen off quite a bit in, in the front end and belly of the curve, as it does seem like. And an easing cycle is upon us or, or perhaps just a gradual normalization of policy that the big question is just how much will the Fed need to or decide to do at this stage. So it'll be interesting having the 30-year auction this afternoon after the CPI print. Always interesting to see that CPI number kind of sandwiched between the 10-year and 30-year. We'll be keeping an eye on that. But the indication so far suggests that demand for treasuries at these lower yields is still solid. So if we still have solid demand for treasuries, even at lower yields, what is the path of least resistance for treasury yields in the near term? Call it 
through the next four weeks or so. And I realized that we do have a Fed meeting and ECB meeting sandwiched in there. So definitely some potential swing factors. But as you're thinking about the supply demand balance, where do you think we're likely to go from here? Yeah, Wendy, with supply and demand seeming to be in in decent balance, and you've had yields tick up a little bit from their lows. I think the 10-year treasury officially finished 2023 one basis point higher than it started the year, which is pretty incredible. Um, But, you know, so supply and demand seemingly in decent balance right now, what we've been looking at is just what the market is priced for in terms of cuts by the Fed in 2024 as a whole. Last I looked, it's around 140 basis points relative to our expectation for just 100 basis points. And so if the recent upside surprise on average hourly earnings and CPI sort of filter through the market a little bit more gradually than than the snap reaction that we've seen so far. We think that the near-term path of least resistance is probably a bit higher. If you look at just a rolling window of 20-day daily changes in the December 2024 Fed Funds futures contract pricing relative to the two-year, five-year, and 10-year treasury yield, the correlations are very high, around 0.9 for the very front end, 0.8 for the 10-year, and the betas for those daily moves are about 0.9 for the two-year, 0.8 for the five-year, and 0.6 for the 10-year. So you could think about that repricing, let's say 10 basis points of repricing higher in the December 2024 Fed Funds futures contract would result in about a nine basis point move in the two-year, eight basis point move in the five-year, and six basis point move in the 10-year. And so if the market does start to come around a little bit closer to our view, we think you're going to see a little bit of a bear flattening of the curve in the near term. Looking at where real yields and break-evens are, it seems like break-evens are right around the, the sweet spot of where we'd expect them to be around two in a quarter, maybe that starts to drift lower. You have real yields a little bit above what we're expecting for year end. I think we're around 180 on the 10 year. We think that can move back to one and a half percent as GDP growth slows down from the fairly torrid pace that we saw in the middle of 2023. And so our year end target for the 10 year is, is 375. We think you're going to see some ructions, certainly with plenty of, of key economic data and monetary policy releases throughout the year as we parse through what the Fed and other major central banks are going to do and how those economic prints factor into that. And so winning near term, maybe risk skewed to the upside. Longer term, we think we could see things drift a little bit lower. That's super helpful. And I just want to add some color on the corporate issuance side of things because we've seen a pretty robust start to the year, especially for investment grade. And this is true of both the U.S. and Europe. In the U.S., we've priced over $90 billion year to date, and we've had you know less than 10 trading days in January so far. So feels like we're solidly on track to meet those expectations for around 160 billion of issuance in January. And our forecast for the full year for IG in the US is 1.3 trillion for the year. We also saw a blockbuster opening of the market in Euro IG with a record setting first week of the year. And across the board, we've been seeing very solid order books on pretty robust demand. I, I think that this took a little bit of time to get rolling. The first week of the year had just so much issuance and so much anticipated issuance that I think that investors were a little 
little bit slow to kind of get into order books. But in the second week, we've seen new issue concessions tighten pretty considerably. And secondary performance has also been very strong. Issuance so far has been slightly more skewed to corporates, but financials have still represented almost 50% of issuance. And we think that there's likely more to come post earnings. We've also seen borrowing costs continue to fall to start the year. Uh, We're now sub 5% for new issue coupons on industrials. And across the market, we're at about 5.2% for USIG new issue coupons. That compares to a 2023 weighted average new issue coupon of about 5.5%. So 30 basis points in savings just to start the year. Now, the leveraged finance markets, they're definitely off to a slightly slower start. That is not super surprising, given that we've had a more mixed risk tone across markets to start the year. But we have seen a decent handful of high-yield bonds price this past week. And in the loan market, there's currently about $14 billion in market that excludes repricing and amended extend exercises, and about $2.5 billion that has been done so far. So we do think that those markets are probably going to continue to open back up One big area of focus for a lot of the investors here in London and Europe is definitely that Euro high yield maturity wall, which is stacking up pretty considerably in 25 and 26. And we do expect that Euro high yield issuance is going to increase to around 90 billion in 2024. And that's off of 50 to 55 billion in 2023. So a very material step up there. And there's a lot of, I think, kind of fingers cross that that high yield market can can pull it off because there's still questions around economic fundamentals and the ability of a lot of these companies to really pay up in new issue coupons and what is the sustainability there. Also on the fund flow side of things, we're seeing a pretty good start to the year when it comes to fund flows. This is especially true on the ETF side of things. Year-to-date ETF fixed income inflows are 9.8% billion, uh, with U.S. investment-grade corporates taking about $7 billion of that in inflows, some mo- more modest inflows into high-yield and bank loans. And then also, quite notably, on the mutual fund side of things, we saw a $3.5 billion inflow into IG mutual funds in that first week of January. Now, this is the first inflow that we've seen in quite some time to IG mutual funds. And also, quite importantly, it seems like the pace of high-yield mutual fund outflows is really starting to steady up. And we are seeing kind of bouts of inflows here, more modest outflows there. So it definitely is not necessarily that kind of very negative retail sentiment across the high-yield market that we had seen for much of 2022 and early into 2023. And as Many will recall in our outlook, we were very focused on the technical side of things because there's so much cash on the sidelines and because we think that as central banks start to slowly ease policy and people anticipate that policy will continue to ease into 2025, some of the cash sitting on the sidelines locked up in the front end of the curve in money market funds 
is going to need to come into other products, including U.S. investment grade, kind of flowing down into high yield as well. So, Zach, I want to hear from you. When do you think that that happens? When do you think investors get more confidence that we're going to see this rotation out of the front end into something else? What what are the things that you're looking for here? Well, when it certainly hasn't happened yet, with the latest figures for money market fund assets still moving higher. And so it it seems like maybe we're going to need to see that first cut happen, perhaps. And I think there could be a mentality that, you know what, until the rate that I'm earning on these money market mutual funds starts moving lower, I'm, I'm just going to kind of take advantage, especially when you just kind of consider that the rates have moved a lot. And so I think looking further out the curve maybe would have been a more obvious move in October. And you actually did see money market mutual fund assets dip in the second half of October. That's since been more than recouped. And so I feel like we get the question a lot of how much could rotate out of the front end, let's say in 2024 into other asset classes. And I think we saw about 900 billion, maybe closer to a trillion in inflows throughout 2023. It's really hard to say how much of that could come out and how quickly it flows out. I think that'll depend at least somewhat on how quickly the Fed moves policy, even a small portion of that reallocated into something like investment grade or high yield credit is going to move the market fairly substantially, it would seem. And so that narrative is still in place. If, if we do get a scenario where the Fed cuts only once or twice and has to hold because inflation is stickier than anticipated, perhaps that technical tailwind isn't as great as we're anticipating. But I think, Winnie, if, if that is to come to fruition, we're going to see that happen in the next couple months here. It'll be interesting to see how the Fed postures this January meeting, which feels at least relative to our call like a, a tweener. They sort of did the pivot in terms of forward guidance in December. Do they double down? Is, is Jan, the January meeting just kind of a, a nothing burger and, and we got to wait till March for the, the cut to actually come into play? But I think over the next couple months is, is when we'll get a feel for what happens at the very front end. And I think one of the things that we pointed out in our outlook, which I think will be interesting, is just the relative value prospect of something like investment grade credit with the yield to worst there about as attractive relative to the earnings yield on the S&P 500 uh, as the most attractive it's been really since the the financial crisis. So I, I think that's a, a big driver of our call. What do you, how are you thinking about fund flows and the technical picture broadly when I know you kind of took us through what we're seeing in investment grade and leverage finance on, on both sides of the equation? How are you thinking about where technicals go from here and how it fits into our outlook for 2024? Yeah, Zach, you know, I think that we saw kind of a, a good illustration of the power of the cash on the sidelines to be very supportive to a range of asset classes in December. We did have two weeks of money market outflows in December that were coincident with the Fed, you know, perceived pivot or actual pivot. It's still a little bit to be determined what, what that actually was. And the outflows were material, but still a, a very dr small drop in the bucket relative to the amount of cash on the sidelines. And that managed to push valuations almost to our 2024 target for investment grade, four basis points wide. We're at 104 and we have a 
100 basis point target. And for high yield, it managed to push spreads tight to our year in 2024 target. And so if that was just two weeks of outflows, I mean, man, when the rotation really starts, it's going to be game on. So I'm equally parts kind of terrified and excited to see how, how all of this unfolds. I mean, I, I hope that we're right in this situation because it's just going to be absolutely fascinating. But, you know, for investors who are, are complaining that spreads are already tight, I mean, get ready. Could we, could we set a new all-time record tight in high yield or an investment grade? It could be possible. I was going to say, Winnie, so how are you feeling about our forecast? You just went through our year-end targets in terms of spreads, pretty much got there on IG, actually got through it on high yield. And we consider our base case to be kind of the the bull case and, and consider risk to that. So do you think we need a new buller case or <laughs> is uh, is do we need to get concerned that, that things have already moved too far and risks are, are now skewed to maybe this hard landing unfolding or stagflation being the scenario that actually happens in 2024? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think it's one that all of our clients are asking, where do we go from here? Because we came so far so fast in such a short period of time. I would say in general, I feel okay about our calls for 2024. If anything, the past few years have illustrated that it's never a straight line in the markets. You have these fits and starts. There's always periods of volatility. The unknown unknowns come to fruition and you can kind of see, oh, this is what I didn't have on my list of things to be concerned about this year. This year, geopolitical is definitely going to be in focus. One thing that I am feeling a little bit more nervous about is the inflation prospect. And this is a result of a few different things. Some of it is geopolitical with Israel, Hamas, Russia, Ukraine. Now what's going on in the Red Sea? all potentially inflationary for a wide range of commodity prices, energy prices, shipping prices. How does that get passed on to the consumer? And geopolitical, also just a, a big area of focus from a risk on, risk off perspective anyway. And then there's the other case to be made around kind of inflation and growth. And it is, you know, what if we are all too cautious again? What if our expectation for U.S. growth of one to one and a half percent is, again, way too low? And it may be. We could still see the benefit of consumer spending. We could still see the benefit of some of the fiscal impulse and fiscal tailwinds as they make their way through the market. We could see China start to be much more aggressive in supporting their economy and starting to see some recovery on the property side of things and the broader industrial complex, which then has pretty meaningful implications for global growth and Europe. So. I think that we came into this year very constructive. We came into last year very constructive. And if anything, we weren't bullish enough, which feels utterly insane because the Fed has hiked so much and we've seen a lot of things go wrong and we're all just waiting for some shoe to drop. So I guess I have this uncomfortable feeling around things continuing to go kind of right. And, you know, where does that leave treasury yields? Where does that leave credit spreads? It's a really interesting environment to be in. And I need to consult my crystal ball. 
Yeah, I think we all need a crystal ball for just kind of balancing what we've seen over the past couple of months. So, Winnie, I, I feel like you got to talk to some clients in person. You've been doing a lot of Outlook calls across the pond here. What's the pain trade in credit? What, like, what is going to be the most harmful to portfolios relative to where people are set up? I feel like that is an important factor in just kind of thinking about positioning and, and if if we're kind of offsides, what kind of move might create a, you know, a vicious cycle in terms of markets moving one direction fairly quickly? I think definitely the pain trade at this point is central banks don't cut as soon as people expect and as quickly as people expect. That is definitely a consensus view at this point. I would say that when we've polled audiences at our different outlook, our base case in both the US and Europe, which have good spread compression, decent total return potential, yields moving lower, that seems to be more universally embraced as the base case. So a scenario in which yields move meaningfully higher again, I think is a key pain trade within portfolios. I don't know that there are a lot of investors that are set up to really deal with that. And, you know, if, if anything, new issue kind of across the board is highlighting just how much demand there is for duration. And so if we've had this really robust demand for duration and then things get materially repriced, that feels like it would be quite challenging to portfolios and just also investor morale because dealing with duration has been such a struggle now for over two years. Yeah, it's it's a great point. And I, I feel like in our discussions we've had recently, it's, you know, just even looking at the consensus, it's very skewed to lower forecasts, at least in terms of the 10-year Treasury yield. Just looking at the, the Bloomberg screen now, the high for Q424 is 4.5%, whereas the low is 3%. And so I'd, I'd agree that in terms of what could blindside the market or what's really not being is not out there in terms of of market narratives is is the probability that we you know go back to five percent on the ten year, whether that be due to the Fed holding policy steady, inflation reaccelerating. I, I do think that that at least in the past couple of months has kind of gotten priced out of people's minds, if that's a a phrase to use. I think that's a great phrase to use. And I think that that's also a great place to end this first version of our season five podcasts. We have a lot of great podcasts planned for season five with a number of our different analysts. I know that, Zach, you are actually about to hop on and record one with Josh Estrov, who's our senior insurance analyst, talking about FABNs. Zach, you and I will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about a really great collaborative risk report that we are working on with our analysts in both the U.S. and Europe. We're going to be talking to Davis A. Bear about high-yield telco and what is going on there, which is especially topical given the shenanigans at DISH lately. We're going to talk to our colleagues in LFI about leverage loan market happenings and also private credit. We have Mary Pollack talking about Euro real estate, and that is just a small number of the podcasts that we have planned for the next 10 weeks. So as always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Zach, for joining me today. If anyone has follow-up questions for me or Zach or any of the Credit Sites analysts, you can always reach out to us using that Ask an Analyst function on the creditsites.com website. Thanks so much, Zach. Thanks, Winnie. Safe travels. 
Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.